Welcome to episode 230 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, and more. My guest today is Karen Hines. Now, as you know, there are many theatres and theatre companies that have shut down their productions as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. A lot of these companies are in desperate need of help to ensure that they can keep their doors open once the current crisis is over, and they're turning to crowdfunding in order to do that. In the coming weeks, I'm going to highlight some companies that need your help. This week, I want to highlight the Assembly Theatre. The Assembly Theatre is a wonderful space that provides a platform for emerging artists and independent artists from diverse communities. They're currently running a crowdfunding campaign to help keep their doors open. And I'm going to put a link to their campaign in the show notes. And I would encourage you to, if you can, give just a little bit. If you've been listening to Stageworthy for a while, or maybe you're a first-time listener and you're listening through a link on the website or that you got through social media, did you know that you can subscribe so that you never miss an episode? You can do that by searching for Stageworthy on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or, you know, wherever you get your podcasts, and clicking the handy subscribe button. After that, every week, the newest episode of Stageworthy will be delivered right to your device. And if you subscribe, let me know that you're a new subscriber. If you want to drop me a line, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby. And my website is philrickaby.com. And you can find Stageworthy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at StageworthyPod. And the website where you can find the archive of all 230 episodes is at StageworthyPodcast.com. My guest this week is Karen Hines. Karen came to talk about her upcoming play, All Little Animals I Have Eaten at Nightwood Theatre, which is unfortunately no longer able to proceed due to the COVID-19 crisis. However, Karen has a lot to say, and we still wanted to present my conversation with her. Karen is a playwright, performer, and director. Here's our conversation. I want to start by asking you to give me, to tell me what you can about all the little animals I have eaten. Right. Um, Okay, all the little animals I have eaten is um, in some ways a modular play. There are a number of scenes um, Mm -hmm. between uh, two performers slash two characters um, that were originally written uh, not connected with each other. the play was very originally inspired by the Bechdel test. Okay. Which is, uh, for those who don't know, the Bechdel test, kind of very simply put, is uh, a test that Alison Bechdel and her friend Liz Wallace came up with. And in fact, some actually credit Liz Wallace more with the test, but Alison Bechdel made it famous in her comic strip. Mm-hmm. Uh, the test is a, a cultural test for films and um, television fiction. Um, a... a, a a work of fiction, a film, a television show will pass the test if, in said work, there are there are at least two minutes wherein two women speak to each other about something other than a man. Mm-hmm. And that the test was sort of revised to um, include that the women had to have names. Mm-hmm. Yes. And remarkably few films at the time this test came out, which was about 20 years ago, 25 yeah. maybe. Um 
remarkably few works of fiction, television, film pass the test. Shakespeare did not pass, does not pass the test. No. Cats passes the test. Um, That's fascinating. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. And so it's not a, it's not a, a um, it, it doesn't assure quality. Mm -hmm. um, it just is a, it's a, it's just a test. Just yeah. kind of checking out what's out there mm -hmm. in the cultural realms. Yeah. And, um, and at the time I began this play, uh, I believe it was 2014, 2015, the Bechdel test was kind of a big thing. Mm. It was relatively new to a lot of people and it was kind of revolutionary. This was before the uh, Me Too. Mm -hmm. This was before Trump. This was before so many things that have rocked our world. So yeah. um, the play began like that, just me playing around with scenes with two women who spoke about anything other than a man. Um, but then, not, not that the play has anything to do with the, the Me Too movement mm -hmm. or with Donald Trump, um, but the world, the feeling was different, and the Bechdel test became something that kind of receded yeah. from our view. And so it no longer is front and center, although it still obeys the Bechdel test. <clears throat> so, or passes, I should say. Passes yeah. the Bechdel test. Is there a particular, aside from the... So I'm going to tell you what it's not. Yeah, it, yeah aside, aside from those things, what <laughs> is there, what can you tell me that it's about? Um, it is about a server. Okay. It, it's about a server on a nightmarish shift. Okay. As this server works in an all-female condominium um, uh, bistro, mm -hmm. and in fact, the bistro, as in many server nightmares, kind of fractures into four separate um, establishments over the course of the evening. And I, I don't know if you've ever been a server, but um, I was a server many years ago, and I still have server nightmares. And my nightmares include things like my section is in a forest, so mm -hmm. I can't see my tables, or, or my section is on like three different subway platforms, and yes, I, yeah. you know. And, um, but uh, so this server is um, kind of setting out on this evening to uh, finish a paper that she's working on that is inspired by Alison Bechtel mm -hmm. and by uh, Virginia Woolf, by mm -hmm. Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own. This server happens to want to live in this condominium. It's a super fabulous all-female condominium that has like very small suites, so they're not as expensive as a two-bedroom suite or a one-bedroom suite. Um, they're mostly small studios, and so many people, um, you know, can aspire to live in them. People who live downtown, um, but over the course of the evening, um, she has uh, many rude awakenings hmm. that have to do with her take or her um, interaction or her interface with neoliberalism, hmm. capitalism, and market-driven feminism. Hmm. And you said that, that this didn't begin as a, a single play, that they were unrelated at first. Mm -hmm. um, at what point did you discover that they were related? Oh, that's my, that's my phone. Okay. Um, <laughs> that's, that's the kind of thing that would happen in my play. Okay. And, and yes. I, I would be the villain <laughs> for, for having my phone go off in such a situation. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> okay. That's fine. We'll yeah. be hearing that phone go off probably several times over the podcast. <laughs> as long um, as I know it's not mine. No. Because yeah. I'm looking at it, I have the same ring. Oh, <coughs> I, I've got an, I've got a new phone. Normally, normally my ring is crickets, okay. um, which would probably kind of go with the, you yeah. know, people would just think that we had crickets in your room. Um, so, um, sorry, what was the question? <laughs> Just about, about um, how, I'm jet you, everybody. <laughs> how you, you, you came to discover that these plays could were, did belong together, these uh, scenes belong together. Um, well, really what happened was that I wrote one, and, and then I heard about the Bechdel test, mm. and I observed that the scene passed the Bechdel test. Mm. The women were not 
good women. Um, it wasn't my finest work as a writer, but the scene happened to pass the Bechdel mm. test. So I took it and thought, what if I put three such scenes together? Mm. Um, what might it feel like? And all three scenes I happened to um, place in situations that if they were not in a restaurant or a cafe could mm -hmm. be easily translated to a restaurant or a cafe. Right. Um, like one was set in a park and it was easy to move it to a, a restaurant, mm. a bistro table. Um, and so I did that. And then I just decided that there must be then a server. And then I thought, why have I never written anything about serving, seeing as I did it for 10 years? <laughs> and it, you know, shaped me as a human yes. being and destroyed me and <laughs> disfigured me and you know, all uh -huh. sorts of things. Um, and um, so then I, I put the server in. And mm. then um, and then I was part of the, um, there was a, a play, playwrights forum at the Citadel Theater in Edmonton. Mm -hmm. Uh, run by Colleen Murphy, and um, and I was invited to join this this playwrights group um, for a month one summer, and um, but I had to have a play in the works, and so I just wrote a whole bunch of stuff to to you know make it at least fifty pages long, sure, so that it was a considerable enough number of pages that that it could be considered as, um, <laughs> as a work in progress as a play. Um, and so, I, I mean, a lot of times you write things under duress like that. Like yeah. you, you don't get to it until you have a deadline and the, the deadline can be a fringe deadline yeah. or a production deadline or, um, you know, a grant deadline, whatever it is. But that was my deadline and that got me going. Right. Um, and and then yeah. I started to write all kinds of other things to to to, to link it up. I, I decided that I didn't want it just to be scene after scene after scene right. of women at you know two women at a table talking about anything other than men and babies. Right. Um, I decided that um, that I wanted to have little um, you know breakout scenes. Mm. So for example, one of the scenes is called um, Sylvia Plath on Facebook, and um, so it's about what would have happened to Sylvia Plath had she been on Facebook mm -hmm. and. It, postulates that she would have survived um and stuff like that yeah so yeah so i started to yeah branch out a bit is this production at nightwood the the first production of this no it's not okay um the the play was produced first at one yellow rabbit theater mm -hmm. in calgary okay um directed by blake brooker and staged by denise clark and um uh it was um it was in the high performance rodeo there mm-hmm and um, it was, the thing about it was that um, we went into rehearsal and, and my mother died five mm. days before we went into rehearsal. So at a point where I needed to be cutting, and I needed to be cutting, mm. I started to write a whole bunch of new stuff. Right. Because my relationship with mortality became different. Yes. My relationship yeah. with women became different. And so I, I dug down and came up with all this new stuff. And it was clear that it was, um, you know, it was sort of like two human beings had written the same play. Mm. And yet I didn't, I, I couldn't quite synthesize everything enough to cut. Yeah. And, you know, my poor director slash dramaturg, Blake Brooker, who happens to be my partner as well, um, <laughs> it, it was a tough time. You know, yeah. he's, he obviously would have been torn in several directions. Mm -hmm. um, and really begging me to cut, but then also like you know his his partner is is falling apart because yes. her mother just died. Yes, yeah. And um, and it was pretty. It was she had she had been you know she had been a long time 
going, but then it was sudden, like at the right. end, very quick. Mm. And so I was very destabilized. Mm-hmm. And um, But, you know, some of the really good writing in the play came out of it, but I couldn't cut it yet. And so the play was, was a bit rambly. Um, and I would not say it was finished. I, right. in a way, though it was the premiere, I would call it a workshop production. Okay. And I would okay. say most Canadian premieres should be called workshop productions because most of us don't get the, you know, month of previews that no. one gets at Stratford Shaw, um, you know, America, yeah. uh, Broadway. Um, we get two. Yeah. And so to call a premiere a premiere is, is just, just like unfair to most productions. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I decided under my own steam to revise it and, um, and then, uh, went to Kelly Thornton at Nightwood Theater, uh, with a revision, um, and then proceeded to workshop it twice more after production Mm. with Kelly Mm. at Nightwood. And then again with Andrea Donaldson, when Andrea Donaldson took over, took the reins of Nightwood Theater. So it's had as much, if not more development after its Mm. premiere as it had before. Hmm. The idea of of that we don't get much of a workshop Mm -hmm. in Canada. That I think a lot of times we don't get. Sometimes we don't get any. Yeah, that's right. We get. Yep. Sometimes we might get a preview or a couple of previews, if that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think you're right that it turns out that the first production is often a a bit of a workshop. is that I mean that's something that, that is not uncommon in Canadian theater, but oh. I think that we're I think we should workshop more. That we pretend it doesn't have an effect on the product mm. is kind of insane. Yeah. And also when I say that it had three workshops at Nightwood, you know, bless them, those workshops were two afternoons. Right. Two days. Right. Two afternoons. Right. So I'm, the play is currently being translated into French. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be part of the Jamelou Festival in mm. Montreal in May. It has five days of rehearsal for one staged reading in huh. front of people. Mm. And that's the difference between um, the Quebec model and right. our model. Yeah. Um, it's it's like this this thing that we're all so used to, mm. like frogs being boiled, that we we don't we don't even really talk about the absence or yeah. lack of of workshopping time or development, really serious development. Um, and many playwrights who do develop end up taking it on themselves, mm-hmm. right? So. Um, you know, you have a lot of people like I was listening to the podcast of yours with Helen Knight, which mm-hmm. was so delightful and yeah. hearing her talk about, you know, how she's going to go and do some nursing mm-hmm. to help finance her next work. Yeah. And um, that's what we do. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I mean, we it's impossible to live in Canada and not be affected by what happens in the States, mm-hmm. both politically and theatrically. Mm-hmm. And if you look at, at some of the, the more successful shows that have happened in New York, you also look at their history and see that there was a long process of, of workshopping That's right. these plays. Yeah. yeah. And these ca- and cast members who often go, went on to originate the roles on, say, Broadway, were with the production for several years mm-hmm. leading up to it, which mm-hmm. is something that we miss entirely here, where it's almost like playwright finishes their play, they might get a revision in, and then we're throwing it on the stage. That's right. And... And so many plays never get seen again because of that. Mm-hmm. And it's not the play's fault. No. So many plays are so close to being their brilliant self. Yeah. And they just fall short slightly because they're too long, too short, too mm-hmm. thin, too... You know, it's... it's, uh, it's um, I, the, I was part of the Drowsy Chaperone mm-hmm. um, development, just sort of was in the last Canadian production before it went to America. And so I 
was really um, familiar with the path that it took and how much work went yeah. into getting that to Broadway. But it, it didn't just fully formed, sprung from everybody's brains onto the stage. No. It, it was loads and loads of labor. And they had so much input from the Mervish's input, you know, yeah. creative and financial. Yeah. And, um, you know, we forget all that. And we, yeah, we do. Yeah. It's it's like we're, we're throwing little little kittens into the water to sink or swim and you know kittens don't swim well absolutely <laughs> they, they need help i don't I always, know why a kitten but no but why not thinking of kittens i often think about how um how much you learn from a play when an audience reacts to it which is mm-hmm. often very different from when your dramaturg sits down and talks to you mm-hmm. about it yeah um that i i don't know how we've functioned so long without exposing audiences to early drafts of a place so that we can make them better and therefore mm-hmm. make things that that last and are produced more and more mm-hmm. rather than done once and then forgotten mm-hmm. yeah um <clears throat> we have two previews for all little animals mm-hmm. um that's just the model mm-hmm. at, at nightwood that's just the way it is uh but i will be working backwards from that and trying to even if it's just 12 people mm-hmm. uh getting clusters of people to come and watch run-throughs before we preview yeah because when you get a cluster where people feel a bit more anonymous than your dramaturg or your um or um you know two people who've been invited Mm -hmm. to watch um whose voices will be distinct when they laugh or don't laugh yes yes um like as soon as you get a dozen then then you uh, then you maybe start to get a bit of a read Mm -hmm. um even six even even Four is better than one. Yeah. And um, so uh, I I don't know where I'm going to find them from here, but (laughs) I'm going to be inviting people and uh, hoping that they will watch in our, you know, just our last few texts. At least I have had the experience of much of the material having been on stage in front mm-hmm. of a Calgary audience. And I know how much of it works. Yes. Um, And that's really helpful. But there's a lot of new stuff Mm. in this version. Mm. Um. Speaking of Calgary, because you 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 were born in the states, is that right? Yes. And then, so what brought you to Canada? Did you come as a child, or I did come as a child, and then my parents followed soon after they missed me, and <laughs> <laughs> I have, I did come as a child. I was three when mm-hmm. my family moved. Um, I have three older siblings, and. Uh, they were starting to run into trouble being Canadians. All, mm. Everyone, all, my siblings were all born in Canada. Right. My father um, got a wonderful job at the University of Chicago. He was a physics professor and a researcher there. And um, and so he brought the family down. But then my brothers started protesting, saying the Pledge of Allegiance mm. at school. Um, they did not want to sing the, the, the American national anthem. Mm-hmm. Um and um, my sister was bullied uh, by kids in the neighborhood because the neighborhood we were in was sort of like right on the edge of a really rough neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And um, and so my parents decided that they, though they had a great life there, um, they needed to move and they mm. needed to bring us up north. So, mm. so we moved. And what was your, what started you on the path to theater and clown which i will get to but what started you on that on that path um my parents are scientists Mm -hmm. but they have always loved the arts okay my mother's mother was a writer 
she wrote short stories about uh, Kensington Market when it was um, w- during the time that it was um, mostly populated by Jewish immigrants, mm-hmm. and um, she wrote a number of short stories. She was first published when she was sixty years old, and, but she was published in the Atlantic Monthly, which is a you know pretty impressive yeah. place to premiere yeah. as a as a short story writer. And then she was published in the New Yorker, and um, she had about. Um, Though she started when she was 60, she had at least a dozen um, short stories published in magazines and then in collections. And um, she was, um, she ran a boarding house uh, filled with actors and dancers hmm. before she started writing. And uh, and she she just liked them. And she when she took over this boarding house, it was it was given to her by in a divorce. Okay. When she she was quite a wild woman. She had she had several husbands, and, um, and she tried to murder one, I think, um, but uh, sort of not really. But I think she she used the the back end of a meat cleaver mm-hmm. or something. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, um, um, she was she was very um, uh, she, she was a, a, an amazing uh, personality, and she loved amazing personalities. Mm. So she filled her boarding house. She kicked out the army people and the, um, the the people that she was, you know, like the dentists, the yes. people that she was not I- interested in. And she, she replaced them with dancers, actors, hmm. writers. And one of the tenants was, uh, became my, um, what he, what he called, uh, uh, my, 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 step-grandfather in common law <laughs> so um she uh, he was her third husband um who she met when he was rooming in mm. her he was 20 years her junior but they they were married in common law for yes. 30 years he was an actor okay and he worked at shaw and he um had one of the very first independent theater companies in toronto called theater compact mm. And when I was 13 years old, uh, they needed an eight-year-old girl for a play that they were doing. And it was very small at eight. So I played the eight-year-old girl. Hmm. And I was in a play with David Ferry and um, Michael Hogan, um, Larry Reynolds. These are names that are, that are you know, a, a, um, a number, a few of the people have, have since passed away. Yes. Yeah. Um, but uh, Linda Thorson, who was the first um, uh, Avengers, um, Tara, oh, yes. Tara King. Yes, yes. Um, I think she was the first. But... Um, and um, so it was quite an experience for a thirteen-year-old, mm. and I, I was, I, I was already infatuated with the theater, and I just, I did not look back at that point. Um, I didn't go straight into it or anything. My parents were not stage parents; they did not help me. Um, they really just, I was the fourth child. I was like, I had to fend for myself. Um, but, um, so I continued, um, my life pretty much as it was, but I, I just knew for sure what I wanted to do. Did you go to theater school? At, no, at some point or no, 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 okay. um, no, I'm, I'm one of a, I'm, I'm learning bit by bit that there are, there are a number of High school dropouts, college dropouts, in the theater world, people what? people whose names you would know. <laughs> and um, and um, I didn't even finish high school. Mm. I, I I got I got tired of it and wanted to. It was it was like fa- fame was in the movie theaters, and I wanted to be oh, that. Okay. And so yes, yes. I left and I started uh, seriously studying dance and seriously studying um, uh, scene study. I went to New York for a year. I was very mm. young, and I and then um, and then I came back, and I did my equivalency, and I did go to a year of university, which was incredible. Mm. I took 
fantastic courses that shaped me and shaped my writing to this day. Um, but again, I left because I got an acting job. And uh, so I went and did it. And I did theater sports. And then I started studying clown. And I studied with Richard Pachinko. Mm. And I studied clown with Ian Wallace. And I studied, uh, a few years after that, I studied Buffon with Philippe Gaulier. And, um, but it was my, and I studied voice with David Smuckler privately, which mm. was like one of the best things I ever did for my brain, oddly enough. So I had, I had great training and I had some really good teachers mm. in, in New York as well. Um, um, all through private studios, um, Stella Adler, who mm. may or may not mean anything. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I just sought out individual teachers, um, and um, I was like a child eating dirt. Mm. Um, you know, when, when children are iron deprived, they will tend to eat dirt. So they just know. Somehow they yeah. know. So I just knew what I needed and I went for it. And um, yeah. What drew you to clown? Because I know that clown mm. has been a big part of, mm -hmm. of, of your career. So what, what first <laughs> what drew you to that? Um, I was really repelled by it. Oh, really? First. Yes. I was totally repelled. Um, Sandra Shamus, who mm -hmm. is a brilliant solo performer, mm -hmm. Uh, had studied clown with Richard Pachenko, and that was the only good thing I could say for clown at that point. I, I thought clowns were, um, I was never afraid of clowns or anything like that, but I, I just found the clowning that I saw often to be very saccharine. Mm. Uh, Sandra Shamus's clowning was um, not, it didn't look like clowning. She right. just had a very strong connection with the audience. She really heard the audience. She was able to respond to the audience right. quickly. Um, and uh, and that's that is the essence of um, of, of clowning mm. as as Richard taught it. it in, in and it's very very core. Mm. Listening to the audience, being one with the audience, connecting with the audience. Um, he would talk about the magic space, which is like two circles overlapping, and that where they overlap is the magic space, and mm. and that um, you know the performer is at the center of one, and the audience is at the center of the other. But there's a, a place between them, and. Um, that those uh, that aspect of it was very appealing to me, hmm. um, and I observed that it when I studied clown it worked well with improv, it hmm. worked well with sketch comedy, um, but I really was not into the makeup. I really wasn't into the noses. I really wasn't. Then I met Mike Kennard and John Turner, who mm -hmm. are Mump and Smoot. Um, Mump and Smoot, S-M-O-O-T, if you want to Google mm -hmm. it. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I was in Toronto uh, uh, at theater school in the early 90s when they were you know, tearing, starting to tear up at Fringe. Mm -hmm. And so I'm mm -hmm. very familiar mm -hmm. with, with Mump and Smoot. And, and, mm -hmm. and, and, and so... Um, Yes. They, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Legendary. Yes. They, I would call them legendary clowns. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we, we all met actually at Second City mm. in workshops when we were studying. And um, Mike and John had a real camaraderie. They, they played very well together. They, they did gibberish scenes together mm. long before they studied clown. And they're clowns, for those of you who don't know them, speak in gibberish. Yeah. Um, and so... They, they started doing that, and then I started kind of hanging around with them because they were they were making videos, comedy videos. They were entering contests and things like that, and they needed somebody to hold the camera. <laughs> and, um, and I was interested in directing, and I was also just really... I, I could tell that what they were doing was really exciting. And, um, and so we started just hanging out at first, and then, and then they studied first with Richard Pachinko. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so I kind of got my order mixed up there. But they they first studied with Richard, and I was like, no, I'm not. I'm not. No, ew, ew. Um, yeah. And um, and I, I I at the time I was doing a scene study class with Carol Rosenfeld, who is a brilliant scene study teacher, mm-hmm. and she. She used to come up from New York at that time, and it was always a big deal when Carol would come, and I was like, not going to miss my Carol Rosenfeld workshop. But as I was taking that workshop, I was hearing about their workshop, and they were, their minds were being blown. Hmm. And so I thought, okay, I'll have to do the next one. So I did, and I hated it, but I also knew that I was learning things from it that were changing me hmm. in a way that was... Um, Going to alter my relationship with the audience. Mm. Um, and you know, Richard and Ian used to talk about um, the purpose of their work being to break people out of their glass jars. Mm. And Mike and John and I have always disagreed on what that meant. I've always thought that it means breaking the performer out of their glass jar. Mm. And they've always thought it means breaking the audience out of their glass jar. And I think they're mm. right. But, <laughs> but what happened to me is I got broken out of a glass jar. Right. All of a sudden... My improv work, my acting work, everything just kind of opened up. And all of a sudden, I could make people laugh in a way that I hadn't been able to before. Mm. Um, because I was listening to the audience. And I was listening to my fellow performers in a way that I had not done before. And I was able to sort of like, it's almost like encasing myself in some, um, you know, and this is where it starts to come sound really clowny and where I go, ew. <laughs> but like, it's like you encase yourself in some kind of cocoon shell that actually allows you to burst out. Yeah. Um, like there's a, there's some sort of like saran wrap around you that, um, that uh, protects you so that you can be incredibly open, vulnerable um, in a way that is not weepy or, yeah. um, you know, self-indulgent. It's just connecting more with the audience, hearing them and, you know, uh, recognizing what um what they're hearing what they want to hear what they you know what the com- what the conversation is mm-hmm. yeah at what point did you start directing mump and smoot um and i just like f- note that what i just said like the last yeah. three minutes is really bad like it's not what I, would <laughs> say. I would say that i didn't really explain clowning very well That's so fine. just just you know for anyone listening um um when did I start directing them? I, I would say I would say I was directing them from the very beginning. Okay, um, okay. We just didn't call it that oh, at first. Okay. We called it holding the camera. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I chose where the camera went. Mm-hmm. I chose you know I chose all sorts of things, and um, and I also started giving them tips because and they sort of respected me because mm-hmm. I had taken acting classes, and so I had a, I had in a way a lot more experience than them, and I had been in a horror film, which was like huge points for me. I had been in a film called Gnaw, G N A W. Food of the Gods Part mm-hmm. Two, and I had been eaten by a giant rat, and um, so th- this was something that was like, like really, um, I was high status. Oh sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, so they kind of listened to me, and huh. then, and then the relationship just evolved um, really quite naturally, and they started doing um, short performances in festivals, mm-hmm. so like twelve minute performances. And I was on the outside, um, you know, uh, also sort of, you know, semi-stage managing sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but more and more, the conversation began to uh, take shape. Mm-hmm. And uh, we began to share a vocabulary around the work that they were doing, um, based in our shared work with Richard Pachenko, even though we did it at different times. Um, 
and we developed a shorthand and then the shows you know you saw the early fringe shows mm-hmm. so um the very first one uh, uh was you know toronto fringe festival 1927 and uh and and i think it was when we did the first full-length show that we we called me a director Mm. and you know from from the get-go really it was it was much the same as as you know people say how do you direct a clown show it's different all the time it's like well actually it's not it seems like it's different all the time but um but you know a lot of the a lot of the work that we did involved how to create a story in a performance um and be able to break out of the story so that you know so it's it is different all the time because they hear the audience and so they will break out and talk to the audience Mm -hmm. or you know interact with the audience pick up small children and swing them around because they're not supposed to be in the theater um (laughs) things like that and then how do you get back into the scene and um and then a lot of it you know a lot of the stage work is extremely tightly choreographed Mm -hmm. and um you know and they can't see each other a lot of the time right they're facing opposite directions yes. or one's downstage or the other and so like in any production um you know that a director stages a director yeah. helps make it work and then um i guess the only difference is that we don't use english you know the only difference between our shows and and it's not the only difference but you know yes. I mean, it's in in terms of i i, I stepped from directing mump and spoon into directing other things mm. without a hitch mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um did you ever lose your discomfort with clown? No. No? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Because <laughs> what's, what's interesting is, you know, your Wikipedia page, mm-hmm, I don't know if, you, mm-hmm. if you've looked at it, mm-hmm. says that you're considered a Canadian authority on Buffon. Right. Okay. So Buffon, and, you know, this is another fight that John and Mike and I have. Um, I consider Buffon to be um, a subsection and um, very different from uh, the vast majority of clowning. They consider it all to be the same. Mm. Buffon just has, like, a few added touches or something or a few, you know... Um, for me, Buffon was much more palatable because of the edge, because oh. of the fact that uh, parody lent itself to satire, and satire is my bag. Mm-hmm. And so Buffon was far more, um, far, far more. When I when I studied Buffon, I realized, okay, I could do this. When I was when I was trying to perform clown, I was horrible. I was saccharine. I was, I was. Um, you know, I would just show the audience like marbles in my hand and like, oh, like, that was my clown. Like, I was horrible. I was really horrible. But, um, and I was quite horrible actually when I was studying Buffon with Goyer. Hmm. But when I began to put it all together, I started to put the, the parody that, um, that is involved in Buffon that, you know, the, um, um, the notion of, um, affliction as, uh, as a theatrical, um, tool Mm -hmm. um the um aspects of charm and where one draws them from Mm -hmm. in oneself as a performer um when i started to mix all those things with my literary bent so writing um with my second city history with my scene study training with my voice training with my ballet training uh i i was able to put it all together and think oh my god i can do satire that is elevated in terms of like like heightened mm-hmm. um uh that is that is you know a bit surreal i can get into magical realism and have it have bite mm-hmm. and um that's what that's what buffon gave me and so then i started teaching it too because i started seeing a lot of Buffon performed on the stages. It's not as bad now, but uh, at the time I started teaching, there were a lot of people who were really very gratuitous, gratuitous mm. about their um, appropriation, I will say, of affliction. So drawing on something just because it's 
gross or because they think it will be um, hugely effective. People, you know, using wheelchairs with no reason other than it has an effect. But it's like they didn't earn it in any way. There's no metaphor involved with it. And I, I took such an exception to that that I started to teach just to hopefully get people thinking differently about the theatrical power of mm-hmm. Buffon and the responsibility that one has when one uh, uses it. And was, did all of that, you were talking about the synthesis of all of these things, is that where epoxy came from? Yeah, it is. Yeah. And, but epoxy kind of came from Second City at mm. first. Um, the the real seed for epoxy happened in a Second City show. Um, I was in another movie at the time that I was putting up a show at Second City. And I was like, <laughs> I was, um, you know, I'd, I would get to, um, I would get to the theater after shooting all day and the rest of the cast would have been rehearsing all day. So they would have all been working with each other on scenes. Right. And I was quite young at the time. I'm like, hey, can I be in your scene? And then they were like, no, <laughs> you know, we've been working all day. You haven't. So, so I developed a monologue mm. and um, the monologue was Canada. And I posed as Canada um, in the hospital, um, uh, dying Mm. from a broken heart because of all the prime ministers who had broken her heart. Mm. And um, so it was, she was a microcosm and um, she was, you know, an individual, but she was also standing in for a country. And uh, I learned the power of microcosm Mm. and metaphor and my director at the time, Sandra Belkovsky, um, urged me when um, I was I was trying to decide whether I should stay and do another show or whether I should leave. And um, and she comes and get out, get out with the kids. <laughs> 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 and um, and um, and then I and so I asked her. Um, she had directed this piece, mm-hmm. and she had really helped me to bring it to fruition. And I asked her if she would direct the first poxy play. And, um, and I told her that I wanted to do the same thing, but, um, but have the character be a microcosm of North America. Mm. And, um, she agreed to work with me and bless her heart. She sat with me for about two years, once Mm. a week, like a therapist, um, practically while we talked about the show and its possibilities. And then, uh, and then I booked into fringe festivals, Mm -hmm. um, John Turner, Smoot, um, kind of like forced my hand and he went out and got the applications and said, you have to fill these in. You, you have to like, you're never going to start doing it if you don't have a deadline. Yes. Yeah. And so I filled in all the applications and I got back in those days, if you were just organized and got your, your stuff in first, you mm-hmm. got into the fringe. It mm-hmm. wasn't, there was no lottery back right. then. This was again, 1934. <laughs> 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 but, um, uh, so, um, Anyway, I, I had all these de- these 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 gigs, mm-hmm. and the first one was in Orlando, Florida. It was their first fringe, mm. and um, about three weeks before that first fringe, Sandra said, "Okay, you better write something down." And um, <laughs> so, so I did. I wrote a song, and she, you know, we met we met the next day, and she said, "That's very good." Now write another one, and so I wrote another one. And by this point, she was meeting with me every day because she she sensed you know how, how in peril I was. Uh-huh. And then um, you know I wrote the second one. Then she goes, oh, "Okay, so now maybe write something in between the songs." And so I did. And between like those like in those three, it was like all of a sudden it was clear what mm. the show was going to be. 
And, and I had been rolling it around in my brain. I knew all sorts of things about it. I knew that the character would be mercury poisoned. I knew that, um, or, or I knew that she was going to work in a mercury factory. I didn't yet know that she was going to be, you know, that came mm. out of improvs that then Sandra did with me, where she hot-seated me. Because she also realized, okay, you need more <laughs> material, you need it fast. <laughs> and so she put me on a chair, and she asked me questions as this character. And it was, like, awful at first. I was really bad. And then all of a sudden these things came out that were almost word for word in, in the script and mm. then in the book and... Um, you know, that uh, that made it into the little short films. Um, and these came from this one exercise mm. with me and Sandra. And then and then there was, you know, there was work uh, to try to, you know, bring it all together and to, to give it a climax and to give it an ending and that kind of thing. Um, so it's, it's not like there wasn't some really, you know, hard sweat labor in trying to finish yeah. writing it, but um, it felt... I'm sure Sandra wouldn't say this, but it felt like it just like popped out mm. um, after two years of talking. Yes, about yes. It. <laughs> um, how how close to that first fringe were you finished writing it? Um, I I would say that it was about it got about eighty percent of the way there. Yeah. I improvised. Mm. Um, there was a, a section toward the end that is like the climactic section that mm -hmm. I couldn't write, and I, I wrote some of it on the plane on the way down. Um, but um, but I I ended up finishing it on stage, and then went back to Toronto and and polished it. But I would say it was like eighty eighty five percent there by the time that first fringe happened. Mm. And, did you and do other fringes that year? Or did yes, you? yes, I did. Yep, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, did not Toronto. Mm. Um, didn't get into Toronto in time. It wasn't that I didn't, you know, again, no no um, lottery. I just didn't organize it and, right. and, and fast enough. Um, but I did get into the Western fringes. So okay. Saskatoon, mm -hmm. um, Edmonton, uh, Vancouver, Victoria. Mm. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, um, had you solidified that last part then, or did, yeah. did yeah? Okay, I would yeah. I would say that the script that went to Saskatoon yeah. was like ninety six percent okay. of the way there. Mm -hmm. And is Poxy? Would you consider the Poxy plays your first your first foray into into, into playwriting? I would say playwriting. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, uh, writing Second City was where I learned how to write. Okay, mm -hmm. and and plays that you wrote later on, did you were they? easier to write than Poxy or were they more difficult can't um, compare them or oh baby was the second one yeah that popped out in about um like about five weeks but but you know I was like in the mode right yeah. I had just written Poxy's lips and and like it wasn't even it was like four months or five months after I finished doing you know the fringe tour and then I did a run at the poor Alex theater in Toronto right and that finished in November or something and then and then I started oh baby like you know a month after that and so it felt almost like the same process right mm. so it just like but it you know like I've seen kittens being born and some take a long time and some <laughs> pop out oh baby popped out everything after that has been like hard labor right and yeah. long and like citizen poxy took about five years mm. and not every day of course no, but no but took about five years to happen and I did I did workshop versions of it with audiences that I threw away or th threw most of it away um hello hello took years and and again hello hello had a post-production phase mm -hmm. as well that you know I spent as much time on it post-premiere as I did pre-premiere mm. um 
drama pilot episode, uh, which was done at ATP, took uh, at least three years, mm. if not more. And then again, I worked on it for a couple of years after. Um, and uh, and then this one has taken, what is it, another six, five, six years? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, you know, and I, I do rewrite my stuff in ways that some people don't because mm. um, I just am not... I, I don't feel as prolific as I think some playwrights are. Like, they can come up with an idea and um, you do it and they want to leave it behind because they want to get on to the mm. next thing. But I kind of can't get to the next thing until I figure out the one before. Yeah. And it's not profitable. <laughs> no, but I, I get that. I get that because the most of the plays that I've written... Much we don't get to workshop them, and mm-hmm. so I've done them at a fringe or self production, yes, and then yes. you've learned a lesson, and now you have to take those lessons and put them into the play. Absolutely, like in a way, and this is don't don't let my cast listen to this podcast, but in a way, I feel like I'm ready to start writing all the little animals baby <laughs> now. <laughs> Why do you say that you're ready to start writing it now? Is that is that just because uh-huh. you've, of what you've learned from it? Um, well, you know, part, partly because it's a very particular play in that it's about, it's kind of about, it's a zeitgeist play, right? And it's kind of about feminism and feminism keeps changing Mm -hmm. and the world keeps changing and the world has changed so fast in the last five years. So I feel like a different person. The world feels like a different world. Um, women feel like different women, um, you know, people feel like different people and the market is different. And, yeah. you know, um, our, our consciousness around neoliberalism and capitalism is different and um, constantly shifting. Um, and so so I feel like I understand things better now than I did when I began. Mm. And um, but also um, also in some ways, I feel like I. Like, I've written a couple of things in the last two weeks, even, where I go, oh, yeah, that's so great. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's what this play is. That's what it should be. And so, you know, but I have to stop, right? I have to, like, I have to let my actors learn their lines. Yes, yes, yes. So it's like, it's got to stop. And then what, and the beautiful thing is that this is when I know I'm ready to start a new play because I've got things that I really want to put in, but there actually is a production happening. So I've got to stop myself. And then I put it to the side. and And then that, you know, sort of becomes the seed for the next thing. And, um, in fact, one of the scenes in All the Little Animals I've Eaten was one that I wrote for a drama pilot episode, mm. but I cut it from drama pilot episode because, you know, I just recognized that it wasn't, you know, but then I thought, oh, well, that could be in something else. Yeah. Um, do you have a particular file or place that you put things that are in the works or, mm. or do they just sort of stay in your head? I would say, you know, I would say that, um... I would say that they stay in my head, and I mm. think the most persistent things um, do. Mm. Uh, but I'm very disorganized, and I have come across drafts. I, I came across a draft of All the Little Animals where I discovered about three really essential pieces that I'd completely forgotten about. <laughs> like little bits, just little bits, but like yeah. so essential. Yeah. And I thought, I that's really scary. Like, what else is in my, you know, my fried laptop? What else oh. is in my, um, you know, my non-existent file system? Yeah. I, it's, it's, you know, I, and I, and I kid myself. I, 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 or I, you know, I like to think that, um, that that is part of the 
process. Mm-hmm. But I know I've lost things. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, you know, we've all lost things. That's, you know, we all, we've switched computers, we've moved yeah. things around, we forget where we saved it. Mm-hmm. I think that, that that's just a fact of modern writing when we put things digitally. Yeah. Um, it's, it's harder to find things on a hard drive than it is to go through old notebooks. Well, I, yeah, exactly. Um, notebooks are, notebooks are scary. What I, <laughs> what I try to do more and more, more and more is to print out a draft at key moments, mm-hmm. like a, at a reading or a workshop or something, and then take all of the notes, um, that, that come back from people, mm-hmm. um, write them on that draft and then also write all my thoughts or ideas for new stuff on that draft mm-hmm. because I can sometimes keep track of those and keep those in a box. Yes. Um, yeah. but I don't look at them. You know? <laughs> so, I mean, I look at the notes, yeah. I look at the, I look at the notes that come back from like, uh, you know, we just did a, a few months ago, we did a, a Nightwood workshop with Andrea Donaldson in the room and, um, the actors and I, I did look at that just the other day, just to make sure. Did I, did I touch on everything that they, you know, and if I didn't, why? And, um, but yeah, it's, uh, but I, I had a laptop die on me mm. um, about three weeks ago and like right at the height of everything. Mm. And I have backed up to a large extent, but not to a complete extent. Yeah. And it was, it was at the hands of a, of an Apple Support worker. Mm. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to get sued. No. I guess you're going to have to like bleep no, that out. No, that's fine. <laughs> but she moved me onto a um, onto a new operating system, and she said, "Okay, I don't want to move you too far because it's going to fry your computer." So like, so she moved me to like one stage less than yes. she th- thought she should, and it fried my computer. No, and oh. <laughs> yes, and so I thought, okay, that's a sign from the gods. Yeah, and and you know that's a big clown thing. The yes. signs from the gods, right? Yes. Listening yes. to the gods. So um, I just thought, okay, it's saying, Karen, get a move on. And now what you've got is what you've got. Right. And just go with it. Wow. Mm-hmm. Karen, thank you so much. It's been a good conversation. Oh, good. Thank you. I, I Thank you for having me. It's been fun. This has been a Homebody Productions production.